So one longing that, that people share is to rest securely in an unshakable life. Uh, the good things that we enjoy, you know, we, we want them to last forever. But life often hurls various hardships our way, leaving us insecure and, and fearful. Some experiences even shake us to the very core, and we then find ourselves scrambling to, to try to build security, recover uh, some sense of stability, remove every ounce of uncertainty, only to discover it doesn't work. We lack the power and the resources and the knowledge And moreover, the broken world keeps hitting us in the face. Things fall apart. Nations rage. Presidents lie. Economies crash. Bodies weaken. Relationships split. Thieves steal. Rust destroys. Loved ones die. And so we're left shaken... We're left longing for real security. Not only does the Bible confirm that longing, it tells us why we experience it. The world isn't supposed to be this way. That longing exists because our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has separated us from the true security that is found in God and in God's kingdom alone. Apart from God, all the kingdoms of this world remain shakable, uncertain, insecure, very fragile. It's only with God that anyone finds real security in an unshakable kingdom. We're going to talk some about that today as well as what God has done through Jesus to give us an unshakable kingdom. In fact, it's, it's but one of the ways that Hebrews motivates these Christians not to abandon Jesus. To abandon Jesus is to abandon the unshakable kingdom. So I want to begin reading in verse 18 and go through verse 29. And then we'll see what God is saying to us through it. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Remember that Hebrews was written to some Jewish Christians, and and those Jewish Christians are starting to waver in their commitment to Jesus, not so sure if they want to keep following him uh, or or not. And part of that is due to their own passivity, uh, and the other part is due to persecution. Enemies are doing terrible things to them to try to get them to forsake Jesus. And and those two things may be may even be related. As they're experiencing the persecution, they could be saying things like, why keep suffering, guys? Wouldn't it be easier to return to our old ways in Judaism? I mean, the Jews would leave us alone. Besides, didn't God speak in the Old Covenant as well? Why bother with Jesus if following Him means so much sacrifice, so much suffering? And Hebrews exist to address that problem. Okay, And the verses we just read address that problem in two ways. First, they exult in the glories of Mount Zion over against Mount Sinai. And then, second, they they exhort the people with God's unshakable kingdom. Okay, so that's where he's going. Exult in Zion... And then he exhorts with God's unshakable kingdom, and the two are related in that Zion is God's unshakable kingdom. Okay, so let's, let's take these one at a time. First, exult in the glories of Mount Zion. Exult in the glories of Mount Zion. That's what he wants you to do. The word exult just means rejoice exceedingly in something, do it a lot. Get really happy over what we're about to talk about. Exult in the glories of Mount Zion. Verses 18 to 24 present two two mountains. Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion. Sinai, you may recall, uh, comes from Exodus 19 and 20. God had rescued His people from Egypt and then He brought them to this mountain and it's where God gave Israel the law. Okay, God established the law covenant with Israel on Sinai. And that covenant is also known as the old covenant. Okay, that's important because some of these Christians are, are wanting to revert back to the old covenant. And Hebrews is here to say, you don't want to do that. Okay, that's like returning to Sinai. And there's only separation and judgment there. Okay, notice how he depicts it. 
Verse 18. For you haven't come to what may be touched. Now, consistently in Hebrews, there's a, there's a contrast between what's earthly and what's heavenly. Okay? What's of this creation and what's beyond it. Uh, between the old order and the new order that will one day come. So by saying it may be touched, okay, Sinai represents what's earthly. It belongs to the old order. All right? And we know from Galatians 4, which uses a similar comparison that we see in Hebrews... Galatians 4 even says that to belong to Sinai, to belong to that old order, was to be enslaved. Enslaved under the law, okay? Now, by contrast, verse 22 will describe Zion as heavenly. It's the Jerusalem that is above, all right? And and, and that's where freedom and joy are. Before we get there, though, how else does he describe Mount Sinai? He says it's a blazing fire. Darkness, gloom, a tempest. Now, God is invisible. But at times, peppered throughout the Old Testament, He would display His glory very publicly on earth. And one of those occasions is on Mount Sinai. Okay? A blazing fire is what they saw. According to Ezekiel, God is a, is a holy warrior. A blaze with fire. And it's a unique fire too. I mean, if, if he chose, his fire would consume a sinner in an instant. But it's a fire that is not dependent on anything for it to burn. It's a self-sustaining fire. And there was also darkness and, and gloom. Deuteronomy 4.11 says the mountain was, was wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. Now to see God's unveiled presence would kill anybody. You see, he, he must veil. He must veil the fullness of His glory in darkness and cloud. Places like 2 Samuel 22.10 even suggest that what we're seeing here again is the divine warrior king. You see, other kings would ride their chariots into battle and billows of dust would come up from beneath and behind their, their chariots. But with God, all the clouds under heaven gather beneath Him. They mount up like a raging storm. It calls it a tempest. Massive thunderheads veil His presence as the true warrior king descends on Sinai. And then came the sounds. It says, the sound of a trumpet. Now, no man is blowing this horn. The sound comes from heaven. Elsewhere in Scripture, it signifies Yahweh's arrival to judge the earth. Okay, according to Exodus 19, the sound of the trumpet gets louder and louder. Some of you may have seen the movie Dunkirk. The sound in that movie 
They, they use something called a shepherd tone where they, they separate out the tones and then they layer them on top of one another so, so, that, so that the music feels like it's always rising, always building, getting closer, getting louder, and you're on the edge of your seat about to break at the intensity of the, of the moment. At Sinai, the people heard something far more nerve-wracking. Closer and closer, the sound came louder and louder. And then God's voice came from the darkness. He says it made the heaven, it made, it made the hearers beg to have no further words added to them. Why? Well, verse 20 says, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. That's Exodus 19, verse 13 where God set limits around the mountain. The people could not approach God in their sinfulness. Instead, Moses would become their mediator. He would be the one uh, to hear from God and then speak the words to the people. Now, Moses was sinful as well. But God chose him as the mediator. Him to hear and then deliver the law. God gave Moses only permission to enter the mountain. And yet, even Moses... Verse 21 says, trembled with fear. Sinai then represents the old order passing away. Sinai exposes our separation from God. Sinai reveals the way to God is not yet open. Sinai is filled with fear of God's imposing holiness and swift judgment of anyone who crosses him. Under the law, that is your mountain. Under the law, all you can feel is fear of God's righteous judgment. Under the law, you will only know guilt and separation from God. Under the law, there is only condemnation. Under the law, there's no assurance that you can have to approach God's throne freely and without fear. That's Mount Sinai. But if you're a Christian, that's not your mountain. It's not your mountain. In union with Christ, he says, you have come to a far better mountain. It's Mount Zion, according to verse 22. Now, historically, Zion was in Jerusalem. And uh, Zion hosted the Temple Mount, where God would manifest his presence. And also, God's anointed king ruled from Zion. David being the first one. And so, Mount Zion became known as God's mountain. The place where God dwelled and ruled His people in holiness. Zion was supposed to portray God's reign on earth. God's kingdom on earth. But the earthly Zion in Jerusalem, it never lived up to those ideals. 
God's people rebelled. And the covenant at Mount Sinai required God to judge them and then tear down Zion. He sent the people into exile. You see, so long as the covenant at Sinai stood, the people's sin made it impossible to enter Zion and to make Zion last on the earth. Their sin also made it impossible to rebuild Zion once they returned from exile. If the true Zion was going to come, it would be by God's grace alone. And it turns out that even that former Zion on earth pointed beyond itself to a heavenly one. One day, the prophets said God would enthrone a son on Zion's hill. And from there, his rule would bring heaven down to earth. And that's the Zion in view here. Okay, and it stands in stark contrast to Mount Sinai. We... We have yet to see Zion come down and cover the earth. But it's there, and we know it's there, because that's where Jesus is seated on His throne. Okay, we've been through this already when He picked up from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, right? Both are psalms that mention the King reigning from Zion, and both of those psalms are fulfilled when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Okay? Jesus is seated on Zion's throne. He's already reigning over Zion. So if if Sinai represented life under the law, Zion represents what life under the risen Christ is. Life under the new covenant is. What does he say about it? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're not talking about Jerusalem over in Israel. We're talking about Jerusalem that's in heaven. It's above. And one day it will come down to swallow the earth. But even now, he says, you have come to it. All right? This city is the perfection of beauty. You like beauty? You like what's beautiful? and This one is the perfection of beauty. It's where God shines forth in His glory. Psalm 50, verse 2. It's beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of all the earth. God is its fortress. It will stand forever. Psalm 48, verse 2. In it, Isaiah says that the afflicted will find refuge. Isaiah 25 and Zechariah 8 say that God's people will find there a rich banquet that is spread out for them. There will be no remnant of a curse. The children will get to play in the streets without fear. All shame is removed. All tears will be wiped away. And even death itself will be swallowed up forever. This is the new and the better Jerusalem. We may not experience its fullness yet, but in Christ, God has already made us its citizens. He says we've also come to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. At Sinai, there was only gloom and dread. On Zion, there's great joy and celebration. Thousands upon thousands of angels gather to celebrate. It's 
pretty interesting if you start connecting the dots to some of the things Jesus said of the angels rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And now you've got multitudes and multitudes streaming into heaven and the angels are celebrating in festal gathering. We've come to the assembly of the firstborn, it says, who were enrolled in heaven. These are saints from across the ages viewed as an entire assembly. Later, he also speaks of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Most likely, these are the saints who've already died in Christ. Though their bodies lie in the grave, their spirits dwell before God's presence. But this assembly of the firstborn includes all the saints. Whether dead or still living, they're viewed as one gathered heavenly people. And he calls them the firstborn ones. It's plural. Jesus is the true firstborn, but he creates a lot of other firstborns. And in Scripture, guess who gets the inheritance? The firstborn. If you belong to Jesus, you're among those who receive the inheritance. Under the law, all we received is curses, but in Christ, all we receive is blessings. And then it gets even better. In verse 23, he says that you have come to God, the judge of all. Chapter 4 said that God is the one before whose eyes all are naked and are exposed. At Sinai, there was no access to God. But on Zion, there's free access for everyone, even to the judge of all. I love the picture from Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5, where, where it speaks of God becoming a wall of fire around his people. You see, at Sinai, God's fire excluded people. But in Christ, God's fire surrounds his people and protects them. Same God, same holy, fiery presence but now protecting us as his own. What changed? God didn't change. On Zion, he's still the divine warrior whose holiness will not tolerate sin. What changed was that God took away our sins through Jesus. It says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, verse 24. We've come to him, and that covenant says this, If you want to read with me, you can flip back to chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 10, I mean. For this is the covenant, he says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is like a husband speaking to his wife. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant blessing. Sin is our biggest problem. 
Sin separates us from God, and the law can't take it away. Sinai perfected nobody, but Jesus does. Jesus poured out His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Here on Zion, we come to the sprinkled blood, it says, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel speak about his brother in Genesis 4.11 when Cain killed Abel and Abel's blood is crying out from the earth? What does it speak? You're a cursed man, Cain. You are guilty. That's what the blood of Abel cried. Guilty. 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 You can't enter God's mountain guilty. But it says Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood says forgiven. It says wrath of God propitiated. Satisfied. It says the way to God, it's been blown wide open for you. You've got a guilty conscience. His blood says, purified. Defiled sinner, sanctified, made holy. Eternal redemption, I secured it for you. That's how Jesus' blood speaks throughout Hebrews. So Jesus is your entry into Zion, to God's people, to God's kingdom, to God's city, to God's temple, to God Himself. Alright? And that's good news. Now, this reality leads leads next into Him exhorting the people with God's kingdom. But I want to pause here for just a minute and ask a few questions. How do you relate to God? Is God far away to you? Is He unapproachable? Like He's still angry with you all the time? Like He's distant and far and unknowable? Like He's doing all He can to just tolerate you from day to day? When you sin, do you resort to to doing things as a a way to kind of improve your relationship to Him? Maybe I'll have more access if I do this and this and this. And if that's to do so, that's to relate to Him from Sinai. It's to relate to Him as one that's still under the law and still under condemnation. Perhaps that's you and you don't truly know Jesus. You're trying to work your way to God. You wish that you could just know His smile upon, upon you. And so you try to do some good to cover up your bad. And still you walk away every day guilty and fearful and wanting to hide. And this passage is saying, hide no more. Come to Jesus. Trust in His cross. And God will forgive you of all your sins. And He will make you part of His kingdom. And He will free you from that kind of slavery and guilt. 
But let's say you're already a Christian. (laughs) You need to hear the same message. Have you reverted to relating to God from Mount Sinai? I mean, these these Christians here are being tempted to do that. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean you're not vulnerable to going back there. Having been saved by grace, are you now trying to justify yourself by works? We need to hear this word too. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come. Have come. It's a done deal. God brought you into the heavenly city. He enrolled your name. The festival has started. And you got a place at the table with the king. The perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth, that's your home. That's your city. You're a citizen there. You relate to God from there, across the table. You can approach His throne of grace with confidence and without fear. The cross doesn't just get you kind of into the outskirts of the city and then you've got to do all this stuff. To... No, it says the righteous suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God Himself. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So come to God freely. Here's another question, though. Coming into our church... Would anybody be able to tell that we are Zion's people? Coming into your home? Coming into your care group? Would our spirit and attitude and, and the culture here make others say, God, what a, what a joyful people to be around. they got to belong to another world. That must be awesome and their God must be so full of grace because of what I sense in the way they relate to me. Are we relating to one another this way, with this kind of, of joy? Are we, are we in subtle ways perhaps bringing people back under slavery to the law? Is this how we view one another from from the standpoint of dwelling together on Mount Zion and feasting together? God hasn't given the, the inheritance to just me or to just you. He's given it to a whole bunch of others too from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. And all of them have their own sins and their own excesses and their own baggage and their own emotional problems. But we all have these two things in common. We're all a bunch of sinners that don't deserve to be on Zion. And grace got us here by the blood of Jesus. Those two things we have in common. Every single person here. So let's rejoice in that together. And let's relate to one another from the mountain of Zion. All right, let's go to verse 25. On that note about coming to Zion, he exhorts with God's unshakable kingdom. He 
He exhorts us with God's unshakable kingdom. And this is also your application. I guess that last part was application too. Here's some more. Listen up. Be grateful. Worship God. Listen up. Be grateful. Worship God. Those are his three exhortations to close out chapter 12. First, listen up. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Okay, he's taking us back to Sinai. God warned them on earth, and at that time his voice shook the earth. Exodus 19, verse 18 says that the whole mountain trembled greatly. But that, that little shaking of the earth at Sinai, it's nothing compared to the shaking that will occur on the last day. Okay, he then quotes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So God intends to shake the entire cosmos. We're getting further descriptions of God as the divine warrior king. You see, when kings would lead their armies into battle, you could feel the ground vibrating because of the chariots as they got closer. And how much more would the earth shake when the God of the universe arrives for judgment? How much more when the God of the universe approaches to replace all of the rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom? I mean, the Psalms say the mountains will melt like wax before the Lord. So God promises to to come again. His arrival will shake the earth and the heavens. And if the people didn't escape when 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 they rejected God's word from Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject His warning from heaven. You see... I think what's going on here is God was warning them through Moses on Sinai. He's warning them through Moses. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant through Sinai on earth. But now Jesus is seated in Zion's hill and God is warning us through Jesus. Right? That's what Hebrews is about. God has spoken to us through a son. And so he's warning from heaven through his son. Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. In other words, we better listen up when God speaks. And he has spoken in his son, Jesus Christ. Warning after warning have come to us in Hebrews. Let me just read you these. This is just a few. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Chapter 2, verse 3. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's chapter 3. Let us press on to maturity, for it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's chapter 6. 
If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. These are God's warnings. That one's from chapter 10. So God has warned us through His Son from heaven. He has spoken much to us in the person and work of Jesus, but to whom much is given, much will be required. If the people didn't escape when they rejected God under the Old Covenant, how much less will we, will we escape under the New Covenant? So listen up. Right? Don't, don't ignore God's words to you. Don't just be a hearer of the Word. Be a doer of the Word. And then next, he says, be thankful. Notice how he interprets Haggai chapter 2, 6 in uh, in verse 27. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's he talking about? He's saying that the world as we know it will be so shaken by His coming that only the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And if you go back to to Haggai, chapter 2, and you read around the context, there are some specifics that he includes about the things that have been made. The Lord would be shaking nations. He would be overthrowing the thrones of kings. He would be destroying the strength of kingdoms. And then he would be exalting his true city and his true king above them all. I mean, other scriptures and I mean, other other places in scripture also describe things like the sun going black and the stars falling and the and the sky vanishing like the scroll. But the main idea of God shaking the earth here is that when He comes to shake the earth and heaven alike, it's it's to so reorder things that only His kingdom will remain. Okay, so all the kingdoms of the world will crumble, but God's kingdom will remain unshakable forever. And that's the kingdom you've come to in Christ. It's Zion. You're enrolled there. And therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So you know that longing for security that I mentioned earlier, that longing for stability... That longing for everything good to last forever and ever. Well, in Christ, God has secured that for you. And in fact, the wording here is such that you're already receiving that kingdom. You're in the process of receiving it. It's in the process of coming into being. So are you grateful? Good.
Our country is being shaken right now. People are scrambling all over the place. And based on the way some, not all, but some Christians are responding to this cultural moment, it makes me wonder if they've lost sight of the unshakable kingdom they're already a part of. Perhaps the Lord is shaking our country to humble us and force us to see that we're not so unshakable. Perhaps the Lord is shaking our country to ensure that our hopes are set in a better country and in a better city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So don't let the fears of losing everything here consume you. We have reason to give thanks even in the midst of great turmoil. We have come to Mount Zion. Listen to this from Psalm 125, verses 1 to 2. Those who trust in the Lord, that's you, I hope, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. That's a great assurance, isn't it? I mean, if, if you want to grow in thanksgiving, remember the glories of Zion. Just open to Hebrews 12 and start meditating on the glories of Zion. Recall your participation in the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of those benefits is Mount Zion. Give thanks for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then lastly, he says, worship God. Worship God, verse 28. And, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, there's another translation, the, the New American Standard. It says it this way. It's, it kind of ends the clause on gratitude, the last clause on gratitude. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. Now, that could mean that thanksgiving expresses itself in worship and praise and adoration and service. Or it could mean that thanksgiving motivates our worship and service. Either way, God is worthy of our worship. And then he says, worship him in a manner that's acceptable or pleasing is another translation, which I think he describes a bit further in terms of reverence and awe. Okay, these are both emotions of profound respect for who God is. For, he says, even our God is a consuming fire. Not just their God on Sinai. Even our God is a consuming fire. Fire. Notice that the God of Sinai is the same God of Zion. He's still a consuming fire. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, a context that is, that is forbidding Israel from participating in idol worship, creating little gods in their own making, in their own image. And then the reason he gives for not going that way is this 
because the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God is jealous for His glory. He burns with jealousy to receive your worship. His fire consumes any who rejects it. Therefore, for who He is and for what He's done for us, let us worship Him. You see, because this God who is jealous for His glory did not consume us in our sin, though He could have. He put Jesus in our place. His jealousy, in His jealousy for your worship, He provided a way for you to be forgiven and for His honor to be upheld. And so we worship Him. Worship doesn't simply mean what we do on Sunday mornings. That's included. Hebrews 13, 15 will say it is the fruit of lips. Lips that acknowledge His name. But worship is also so much more throughout the New Testament that, than, than just Sunday morning. It's, it's more so 24-7. It has more to do with how we serve the Lord throughout the week. How we devote ourselves to His service day in and day out. It includes rejecting the false gods of our culture and avoiding the false worship of our culture. And more positively, includes actions like sacrificial love for our neighbor. Ephesians 5.2. That is the offering we present to God. Meeting the needs of others. Philippians 4.18. Doing good to others and sharing what you have. Hebrews 13.15. Paul even refers to his own missionary efforts in Romans 15, 16 as part of his service, worship to the Lord. Offering your body as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, verse 1. So from this heart of thanksgiving, we're we're to give our whole selves in devotion to the Lord's service. We belong to Him now. He is our God. We are His people. So listen up. Be thankful. Worship God. Not only is He worthy of all these responses, but this same God has made us part of His unshakable kingdom. Whatever you give yourself to in the name of His kingdom, it will be worth your investment and the suffering and the tears and the struggle. You may have labored for months, maybe for years on something. And you might have even seen fruit for just a little while. And then it all went away. It's like dried up. It's gone. Maybe you saw godless people get in the way and destroy it. It's not in vain. You're investing in Zion, the better country. And Zion can't be shaken. And one day the sky will split. You will receive your reward. Christ will return. God will replace all the rebel kingdoms with His own. The inheritance will be ours forever. We will dwell with Him in glory. Our sorrows will be no more. There will be joy and celebration with all the heavenly hosts.
God, that day couldn't come soon enough. Until then, let us remain faithful citizens of the better and enduring country. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for this picture of Zion. Thank you for delivering us from the curse of the law, for sending to Jesus to become a curse for us, for doing like what we sing sometimes here. You have quenched Mount Sinai's flame against us. Now the flame of your fiery presence only protects us. I thank you, Lord, for drawing us near to yourself. Keep our eyes fixed upon you in coming days, no matter what we may face. Thank you, Lord, for the unshakable kingdom. We lift our voices to you now in song. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.